Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain, aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 37. Security near her room will appear and deliver the Taldor books and the alt history outline to her. Excellent. What has she got to work with? Taldor has been around for nearly a thousand years and has a civil war with brutal regularity at nearly every succession. Because the next emperor is appointed, technically by the Senate, a vestigial body in the capital with no real influence except once every few decades, when it is called upon to name the next emperor. The processes the Senate is supposed to follow are stunningly opaque and complex. The word in Carissa's language for excessively complicated stems from the capital city of Taldor. And there's no mechanism by which the Senate's rulings are enforced, besides that they lend the named person a lot of credibility. Needless to say, that doesn't really work, and peaceful successions are at this point practically the exception. Unfit or young emperors have a tendency to be elevated only to swiftly die of it. Ruthless outsiders sometimes have a go until they misstep in the capital politics. They don't understand and die. The army is always cheerfully threatening to proclaim a general as emperor. Emperors tried in various ways to secure a preferred successor, naming a co-emperor, say, but it was common for junior co-emperors to be killed when their senior co-emperor died or lost his foothold. Taldor is mostly feudal, but the emperor appoints the rulers of some provinces directly, and those military governors are supposed to be especially loyal to him and his enforcers. If a fight is necessary. Of course, if you let your military governors accumulate too much power in their own right, they might overthrow you. Of course, if you keep the people who concern you most close to home, they might assassinate you. Despite all this, Taldor has remained a major global power, mostly for two reasons. Firstly, even its outlying fortresses are a thousand years old and nearly unassailable, including by one another during civil wars. And secondly, Opara itself is a magnificently walled and warded city, and it's said those walls will outlast the world. It's lost some ground to Kadira and some to Galt, but it's still larger than Cheliak's. Keltham's going to be so offended about all of these things. But they'll have whatever bizarre correlations they're supposed to, because Taldor is a real place that really exists. Carissa speed reads some book and makes some notes on the outline and then goes to the library to present to her students. As Carissa enters the room, Pilar clears her throat from a lurking corner near the door and then hands Carissa a very nice-looking piece of cake on an elaborate plate. Surprise, Pilar says. This is your congratulations on seducing Keltham party. Have some cake. Yeah, that's incredibly weird. Carissa is less than delighted. For all you know, I failed miserably, she says, taking the plate and setting it down on the nearest desk. Perhaps in Dathilan they have entirely different anatomy and we both got horribly confused. Pilar says nothing, just scurrying around to the nearest chair and perching there next to Paxti. She doesn't quite look embarrassed about the whole thing, more like she did it on somebody else's orders that she isn't going to argue with. All other girls present are giving her exactly as much of a strange look as you'd expect in Cheliacs, which is to say, it's not at all dramatic or exaggerated, but it's definitely detectable to another Chelaxian. Carissa will just 
ignore that and move on. All right. First, on settling sadism bets, the answer is yes. Also, do not propose a bet with Keltham because Doth Ilan has a deeply bizarre norm that the thing you bet during sex is non-reciprocal services, which would otherwise naturally not be a thing because anything anyone does, they should get something in return for. Yes, he thinks that still applies here where he has knowledge any government would slaughter cities for. Yes, I think it's plausibly worth trying to convince him that evil has more fun, but you've got to be careful about it. I'll give much more specific instruction to anyone who seems to be getting close to him, but the essential bits are, you want to be here. It's ridiculous that anyone would threaten or coerce you into being here if you didn't want to be. You might be exceedingly transactional about your intentions towards Keltham, but it's your transaction that you expect to enrich you. You can, if you'd like, have one mean boyfriend who didn't treat you like that in your backstory, especially if you've got hang-ups to explain but coordinate with me so you don't all do it. I do not want people who are inexperienced with pain in bed or sexually inexperienced generally trying to let Keltham hit you. We're working with a narrative where some people really like that, and most pain here or in hell is because some people really like that. And if you've obviously managed to talk yourself into it, that has decent odds of coming out. You are going to not lie to him about anything that's not essential. I get transcripts. I will light you on fire. You will be grateful I did because otherwise my boss would have to do it. And he has a longer attention span for it. The key thing here is that Keltham notices different features of the world than us, so we don't actually know all that much about how to lie convincingly to him. So the less you force us to fit into the lie, the easier our lives are. Say, I don't feel ready to talk about it. Say, I should have learned that in class, but it was the week my sister died, so I wasn't paying attention. Say, I'm having a hard time putting it into words. Say, can I recommend you a book? I forget all the details myself. You all want to show off by being competent, but we will get more out of Keltham if we are weak, flawed, confused, and therefore wouldn't be expected to have good answers to all of his questions. He already thinks everyone in this world doesn't know how to think. If you can't think of a true thing to say, or an approved in-story thing to say, the thing to do is to let him believe that even harder. Questions? Ione speaks first. She is recovered now, something of the demeanor of a student among other students, when she needs to play that role. I already offered myself up to Keltham as somebody who would do anything he wants without asking anything in return. I'm not actually into pain, but didn't take that off the menu at the time for obvious reasons. I didn't represent myself as already experienced in service or as desiring him sexually, if it's important that I lie about neither of those things. Further guidance? I think that works fine, as long as you keep not lying about those things. Did he not immediately ask what you were getting in return? I represented myself as being willing to do it for the knowledge when I made the offer. Ione smiles briefly. She would be willing, under entirely different circumstances. Paxti's shiny new arcane sight shows that the circlet Carissa now wears is a powerful magic item. You've got an intelligence headband. When do the rest of us... We're going to delay it as long as we can, because outmaneuvering smarter Keltham's going to be even harder. 
may be impossible. Officially, acquisition said it'll be two weeks, and I went ahead and ordered one myself, which I can afford to do, and you can't because I've been earning a generous salary from Cheliax for my work at the Worldwound for six years, and you haven't. The gossip is that this is because, you know, some intelligence headbands are cursed, and even worse, some are just a tiny bit cursed, make you see things in a particular light, and optimistically... Acquisitions is making really sure the project headbands are good and pessimistically, well, they could be manufacturing them a little cursed. Please attempt to have a little bit of subtlety in causing this gossip to reach Keltham's ears. I actually suspect that only the optimistically part needs to be said and he is competent to fill in the rest. Also, we are going to be hiding a lot behind you guys, not actually being all that well-educated, not actually knowing that much history or politics or economics, because magical education in Cheliax is very specialized. The smarter you are, the harder it is for you to make innocent mistakes. Keltham is under the impression you were screened for willingness to bear his children. I think that's just true, but if it's not you now explicitly have permission to lie about it. Keltham is under the impression you are getting generously paid. I think that's just true, because I have told everyone that we are doing as few lies as possible, but if it's not, you have permission to truthfully say, I was told we would be generously paid, and if the money isn't there, I'm going to go to whoever's in charge here and make a nuisance of myself, and then to come to me, and maybe to lie after that, depending what's up. Keltham is under the impression that if you didn't want to sleep with him, no one would make you. You have permission to lie to him about that, but also if you find yourself getting cold feet in bed, you won't actually be punished for telling Keltham, wait, I think actually I'm not ready and I just want to cuddle, because that presently advances our goals. That said, if Keltham ignores you about that, that would be great news for the project, and you should make sure he has a really pleasant time about it and ends up with the impression he was right to ignore you. I strongly expect that if you try to tease him by getting him really turned on and then saying no, he'll just give you a hug and say it's okay. So if you are trying this route, you're going to have to try something a lot subtler and cleverer than that, and you should run it by me. We aren't telling him about the soul arrangements, but if he somehow learns of it, the line is that it's normal for people in dangerous lines of work to arrange their afterlife in advance so they don't end up in Avernus in general processing, and that as a bonus these business arrangements are hotly competed for among devils so a good negotiator can get some reasonably powerful magic out of making their afterlife arrangements. But that's only if he somehow finds out. I, and some of your colleagues, don't have arcane sight because our contractual arrangements were a bit different. We're still working out the best story for that, so for today you should conceal having it. Other things you are explicitly expected to lie to Keltham about. Who his god is. It's going to be an obscure Tian one. Whether all Fourth Circle clerics have a weaker personal aura should they differ from their god in alignment— it doesn't come up much in Cheliax because it can't happen with an Asmodean cleric, but you'd expect they wouldn't. Whether Cheliax is systematically concealing things, whether hell involves involuntary torture, 
and, of course, everything to do with the character of Cheliax as a nation. We're going to be pretending that Cheliax is Taldor, and she explains her reasoning again and explains the key outlines from the fake timeline and from the books about Taldor. At this time, I'll take questions, but my plan is actually for you to spend the rest of the morning learning enough about Taldor that you can be a magic-tracked shut-in who plausibly lived there. So I've been thinking, begins Paxty, and I realize it was just a book, but I don't see any reason why the plot of the damnation of Sir Nicolau wouldn't work in real life if the target was Keltham instead of a paladin only with a series of different girls rather than one woman with a disguise amulet. First girl, obligate fetish for being forced, requires him to role-play forcing her, but she asks him to do that in advance. Second girl, loudly remarks about how she can't achieve sexual satisfaction without being forced, and it doesn't work for her if she has to explain it to the man and we all explain to Keltham what she's hinting and encourage him and note how she never said she didn't want it. He tries it, it seems to go well for him, third girl, always staring in fascination while that's going on, but looks away blushing and can't seem to talk about it. Fourth girl acts angry, but in a way that's obviously sending mixed signals. Fifth girl is straight angry at first, but warms up once she's pinned down. Sixth girl begs him to stop and acts overtly horrified. But by that time, he's so used to it always being a pose that... Wait, I skipped one in the sequence. In the book, there were seven. In the book, Sir Nicolau damned himself on the sixth asterisk disguise. But she kept going to be sure they ended up in the same depth of hell together after she killed him and herself, corrects Ione. Not that I'm agreeing this is the slightest bit workable as an idea. If Keltham is a sadist, then Dathilan has sadists, and his world will have romance novels, and he will notice that we are running the stereotypical plot of a romance novel on him. Asterisk. Romance novels approved and distributed by the Chelish government may not accurately represent exactly which sexual behaviors first produce alignment shift. Doth Elan actually discourages its sadists from noticing because... Keltham thinks. They haven't got people who like pain, and they haven't got any other outlets aside from paying people a ton of money for it, which I think wouldn't even be as fun. But I do think he'll notice if we're running the plot of a romance novel on him, it's too... You wouldn't expect to run across those people in that order unless something was up. And unless you're very good at faking sexual reactions, he'll notice what you're actually into. Doth Elon does train that skill. Also, Keltham has in common with paladins that in real life the biggest barrier to seducing them is them endlessly going, I don't want to risk you having a child I couldn't take proper responsibility for. I think there's no point trying to convince Keltham that that's good. I get the sense Dath Elon has lots of children-related taboos which we should mostly just try to steer very far clear of. Relatedly, you're not allowed to point out to him that he could use magic to make you have an abortion. That said, if anyone does have a convenient fetish for being forced, that seems valuable. And once he's had some time to adjust, we might be able to work with having threesomes where one girl forces the other, and if Keltham objects, both of them are like, we're having a great time here? I have the convenient fetish, 
not obligate, but would be easy to pretend it is, reports Pilar. Unlikely to actually be sexually attracted to Keltham under any circumstances. Will need training to fake it if he had training to detect it, says Asmodia. After some inward agonizing about how to phrase this in a way that doesn't sound like she's being non-compliant. It might be good if attraction to Keltham is not represented as universal, for plausibility reasons. Maybe just tell him you take a long time to develop attraction, though, and put some effort into learning to fake it, so that if it's convenient later, we have the option. Pilar, I authorize you to lie and claim it's obligate, as seems situationally appropriate. Carissa is trying to be very serious about authorized lies to Keltham only in case that helps people break the habit of habitually lying about everything. Paxti and Ioni seem to have developed their own sub-conversation. Adventure of Amaron, Paxti says. I don't think any of us can convincingly fake being half-sea creature, retorts Ioni. I'll concede you could come closer than many. I meant metaphorically. Never mind. A girl corrupted by books, but with Keltham as the girl. Fine except for the part where the outcome is the exactly precise opposite of what we want. I'm not suggesting we run the entire plot. I'm suggesting that in real life, it would inevitably go wrong for Keltham, and then we'd get what we want. Perverting a dawn. That is literally the worst idea I've ever heard. It violates... Now both of their hair is on fire. Just a little bit of fire, a cantrip of fire. If they're good at patting out fires, it won't even burn their hands. We don't have much time before Keltham is done preparing spells, and you all need to spend it becoming familiar with Taldor. Are there any more questions? None that any dare speak aloud. Great! Keltham has no reason to think I have any authority here, and you will lie about that if he asks. Let's all sit together and read about our history. They scatter to desks, but even with more than one girl to a book, there's not enough books for girls. I'd offer to grab another copy of Taldorian Chronicles from Ostenso, but Keltham knows I can do five a day, and he might ask where the first one went, Ioni notes. It sounds like he'd accept my saying that I reserve a book use per day for personal reading, but that's a lie, so I'm checking it. Yes, you can say that if it comes up. Ioni briefly goes into the library's other room and returns with an additional copy of the Chronicles. She's curious about whether anyone else here has been told the full story about her, yet, but she's not going to ask. When you run across something that's interesting or memorable or especially anything surprising, anything that wouldn't be true of Cheliax, share it. And they can get to reading about Taldor. Carissa's so glad she doesn't live in Taldor. It sounds like a tedious, undirected nest of snakes. Shortly after Keltham is done praying, there's a knock on his door. Keltham shall accordingly go to the door and open it. It's a man of about forty, wearing glasses. Keltham, I'm, uh, a researcher studying minor and geographically bounded deities at the University of West Crown, and I was asked yesterday to figure out, uh, which god you are probably a cleric of. I have the report here. Would you like me to leave it or stay and explain it? I wish I could say I'll no doubt understand the entire thing on my own, but this is not in fact the case. I can read through it first, unless you think it's better to preface it with something. No, go right ahead. He hands Keltham eight handwritten pages, bound together with thread. I can wait in one of the sitting rooms? Sure. Keltham takes and reads, leaving his door open. 
The researcher's best guess is that it's the lawful neutral deity Yejing, worshipped in a small coastal country in distant Tian Sha. He has copied from other texts some pictures of Yejing's symbols, and they're not a perfect match for the illusion that appears on people's foreheads when Keltham casts his fairness spells, but they're not far off, and it's noted that these are from adventure memories by Avistani adventurers who pass through the country, so the likeliest explanation for the mismatch is poor recollection. One of the adventure memoirs claims confidently that Yejing is lawful evil, but that memoir has a number of errors. For completeness, he's also included some other symbols that are approximately as good a match, with notes on why the relevant deities were disqualified. This symbol is a good match, but the god is a nature god who usually takes the form of volcanoes and doesn't pick clerics. This symbol is an acceptable match, but the god is a chaotic evil demon lord of the abyss, best known for the time he led a bloody campaign to wipe out all the descendants of Aslant. This symbol is associated with an ancient Aslant god, thought to be dead. And then gods without symbols, but which otherwise seem like good matches. Kofusachi is attested to have truth-telling and trading spells, which is incredibly promising, but he's chaotic. Good, his domain is something like abundance and the state of resources where they are so plentiful one needn't be bothered to charge for them. Possibly he's hoping Keltham will bring that state to Galarian. No symbols similar to Keltham's are attested, but a page of further information on him has been included all the same. Abadar is a lawful neutral god of commerce, but his symbols are extremely well known, they're these, and his first and second circle spells offered to his clerics are also well known, they're spells for ship navigation and preventing goods from rotting. Just in case he stopped by a church of Abadar in West Crown to ask if Abadar has a lesser-known aspect or associations with this symbol, but they didn't recognize either the symbol or the spell. With that established, here's all that is known about Yejing. It's not very much. One of the memoirs has only a single passage copied in full into the report. It claims that the people of this small coastal country live in great prosperity despite their lack of fertile land for their God grants them freely knowledge of truth. And so they all trust each other and trade fairly, and mock the peoples of larger cities who by necessity trust no one and must stand watch at night against thieves. One of the others gives Yejing's divine realm Setsendu in Axis, and a domain of his as justice. The third is the one that claims Yejing is evil, and that Setsendu is in hell, but agrees that justice is a domain of his as are cooperation and trust. Idols of him are drawn with bulging eyes, a long face, and a red beard, but that's indicative of practically nothing, especially with the gods that aren't ascended humans. There are vanishingly few books on him in Avistan, the author says he's reached out unsuccessfully to other libraries, and there's probably mentions buried in some of their books, but it'll take a long time to find them. And the page on Kofusachi, just in case it's actually him, somehow, chaotic good god of prosperity and abundance, mentions, meticulously copied, not very detailed, of trading and truth-telling spells, primarily worshipped in Tianjin, called the Laughing God. Holy symbol is reportedly a string of seven coins. Keltham reads through it all slowly. There's a lot of unfamiliar terms here. 
and he is more than usually on the lookout for things that don't make sense. That Galarian itself does not make much sense is the central problem there. But still, Keltham is looking and noticing the many small confusions. Kofusachi has the trading and truth spells. Doing coordination correctly could look chaotic to the locals if there's a norm, a single uniform way of doing things that isn't correct coordination. The god of coordination could look like good, if, say, good general levels of social coordination are a public good, and public goods are what everyone unselfishly wants everyone else to have. The god of coordination could be mistaken for a god of prosperity and abundance, if people didn't understand what was producing the prosperity and abundance. Yijing. If there's gaslighting going on, then Yijing is obviously the god they want him to believe in. Yijing hasn't had much impact on his people for being the god of coordination, but then, coordination isn't quite the same concept as industry, and no god anywhere has granted Golarion real technology and science. He knows too little of gods to know which parts are confusing because they're fiction, and which parts are truth that confuses the alien with the wrong priors. Keltham will keep this document, obviously, and later check it against other archival-type writings to see if a noticeable difference of style between other archived writings, and these supposedly variously sourced writings, suggests a LARP writing team having frantically produced them overnight. Also the words good, evil, lawful, and chaotic are repeated often enough for Keltham to notice that the person who granted him share language, Taldane, last night probably had a slightly different concept of those terms than Carissa. Good seems innocent, naive, an object of a kind of contempt that has little currency in Dathilan. Carissa's good sounded more like dangerous fanatics out to optimize you, even if you tell them not to. Evil feels like it has undertones of power and sadism in a way that seems reminiscent of some things Carissa said in the cuddle room, but in a sort of creepy, icky, gloating, status-laden way. Lawful has undertones a lot like evil. Chaotic sounds like dangerous insanity and wild predators. The connotations are subtle and hard to describe. The connotations already hammered into Keltham's brain yesterday are competing with them. He already knows those words of Taldane, or his brain thinks it does. Keltham goes hunting for the scholar, finding him in a nearby sitting room. I hope it's not too much of a surprise or an imposition if I say that most of what I need to understand this is background material. Keltham says. For one thing, I was previously under the impression there were a lot fewer gods than this seems to imply, and that they were all global rather than regional entities. What are the numbers like in total? We don't know. There are fourteen gods with well-established churches on this continent. Most of them also have presence in Tianxia. Then there are dozens, maybe hundreds, of more minor entities that create only a few clerics at a time. Those are often geographically bounded, possibly just because if their gods are small, they can't pay attention to a very large share of the plain. We believe there are many gods who never pick clerics. Gods are sort of only a human category anyway for entities that can cleric us. Pharasma and, say, Ye Jing, are going to be very different entities. It's said that there are things next to which Pharasma is small, and we are preserved because they're not paying attention but no one has any proof beyond visions they had. What does it mean that Yejing is a geographically bounded god? Keltham is trying one of the first deliberately deceptive maneuvers he's done outside of diplomacy. LARPs, 
assuming the premise. Keltham has noticed confusion about Yejing being Tian only, and mainly about a small coastal country, because smaller gods can't pay attention widely, and that god managing to pick up his prayer in Cheliacs. Rather than asking explicitly about this, and giving the scholar a chance to correct an unintended implication of a lie, Keltham is instead asking how Yejing is bounded, rather than whether Yejing is bounded. Aspexia Rugaton needed to check over Caden Callian's oracle anyways. As long as she has to visit, goes the reasoning, she might as well visit Keltham right after he gets morning spells and run spell gauge over him to avoid further surprises. As long as she's doing that, she might as well use her personal Detect Thoughts tool, which adopts the user's strength for purposes of determining will saves of the target, on Keltham. Aspexia informs the agent of what Keltham is trying. She doesn't bother explaining who's sending the message. The agent doesn't need the distraction. Also, somebody had better have been on the ball about matching writing styles very perfectly with real archives. Or else, they're going to have to fake all the other archives Keltham ever looks at. Generally, a geographically bounded god's interventions happen within a specific region, and most of their attention is allocated there. To pick a geographically bounded god we know more about, Masluda is the goddess of sacrifice and stewardship, neutral good. She's active in Holomog, a country south of here. She tends to have about twelve clerics at a time, most of them selected when they first visit one of her temples in Holomog. On some occasions she's chosen someone elsewhere, but always someone who had been near her clerics when they traveled, suggesting that her attention was following their cleric. I've written to the Worldwound to ask if Yejing's priests are there right now, as that's the likeliest mechanism. Our representative there didn't know offhand, but they probably are. Even small lawful countries usually send a couple of representatives to the Worldwound on general principle. Or Yejing might not be a geographically bounded god at all. Our references are too limited to be sure. Keltham notes down this exact response to his unspoken question as a slight bit of evidence that they're reading his mind, or talking to devils smart enough to model it eerily perfectly. But it's only slight evidence. If Keltham can think of it, so can they, Keltham supposes. There hasn't been very much other evidence of his hosts reading his mind, not counting Lurlatha seeming to know exactly how to talk to him, and Lurlatha is a more plausible, big special case. I would have expected more for there to be a systematic compendium of entities that have clerics, if there's only a few hundred of them, and especially entities with clerics at the world wound, Keltham says. Any simple way of getting a count on all the lawful neutral gods with clerics there, or even asking them all for a one-paragraph summary of what their gods are about. It is really bizarre to Keltham that info like this has not already been collected. Aspexia isn't out of range yet. She warns the agent to be more careful with using information from subjects who don't know mind-reading exists. Noted. He'd be much more panicked if he knew who was talking to him. We have a list of all the churches that are signatories to the treaty. For a list more comprehensive than that, there's not really a way to get one. The world wound is a hundred miles across. The perimeter is therefore 650. There are 344 different heavily warded fortresses on the perimeter. Eighty-one of them are ours, and we host some foreign adventurers and probably have records of any weird clerics who've stayed at one of our fortresses. But the Tian nations are mostly on the other side, and it's not traversable except by teleport, 
and civilians aren't really welcome, so you'd have to convince some of the soldiers to do it. People can count to 344. If you divide up the work among 43 people, they only need to census eight fortresses apiece. Keltham doesn't pursue this further, though. It matches too much other strangely missing competence to seem relatively anomalous. He just needs to keep better track of whether the incompetence tends to get in the way of anything that might possibly maybe incentivize him to be anywhere but Cheliacs. Sorry for even more basic questions, but remind me of how many hours, or days, of unskilled labor it takes to buy a teleport to the world wound from Tian. Does the basic picture on international trade even make sense here? In Cheliacs, it'll run you 1,400 GP, which is 20 unskilled labor years. Double that for a round trip. I don't know Tian prices, and they probably vary a lot country to country by how many high-level wizards there are and by how far you are from the world wound. A single teleport can only travel up to about 1,000 miles. It varies by caster circle. So that price reflects needing two teleports. In, say, Irisen, you can do it in one jump, so the price is probably around half that. Not that I've been to Irisen. Okay. It taking 20 labor years just to get him here from the world wound is not actually a thing that Keltham had previously known was the case. He supposes that degree of scarcity rhymes with Carissa, saying that a thousand people are the country's effective, real military power. Galarian's economy is insane. Like, not literally inconsistent with itself, but it is going to go on being really weird until Keltham figures out the internal rhythm that makes all the different facts be predictable from premises smaller than themselves. Also, his implied startup debt is bigger than he thought, and he should be less worried about adding small bits to it and more worried about paying back the startup debt sooner. Excuse me a second. Recalculating entire probable state of all international trade, Keltham says absently. When Keltham is done, have you ever heard of a lawful neutral god that tries to prevent giant messes, disasters? No. I mean, lots of them probably do, but I've never heard of one who had that specifically in their portfolio, which means they don't openly have a church in Cheliacs or any of our neighbors. Worth a shot, but either he's been warned off answering, or the broom god really is that secretive. What factors control how, when, and where clericking entities can communicate with or influence clerics? I think the general consensus about gods is that they are primarily constrained by treaty with one another, and by very general resource constraints. So they can do most things, but some things are very costly, and some things they've promised not to. A smaller god would be more resource-constrained, and the lawful gods are more treaty-constrained. I'm really hoping for a lot more detail than that. All the other facts along the lines of, they can see where their clerics go, so can use that to pick new clerics. Has anyone measured the distance a cleric can move away before a god stops hearing prayers directed at them from non-clerics nearby the cleric? Does it vary with other measurables about the god that you can use to infer a central strength factor with which both cleric sight distance and other factors vary? No. The number one thing that is implausible about this place is how much supposedly nobody has ever tried to figure out anything important, but nobody would lie using that lie. They would make up fake data, so it didn't look like an endless stream of hidden information. And maybe they are playing one ply deeper than him, and know this is how he'll feel, and want him to feel this confused. But nonetheless... Keltham gives up on subtlety. If that was what somebody was hoping for, 
They have gauged him perfectly. My God can't seem to contact me. I can tell they want to. I can tell they can't. What's going wrong and how do I fix it? Huh. Possibilities? There's some treaty prohibiting them from doing so. If there is, I don't know anything about it. They are a localized god, and you're too far away for them to do something as costly as that. They don't know how to talk to mortals without overriding their brain. Nethys is known to have that problem. Overriding, Ioni says a part of himself in sudden horror. Does that destroy their mind state? Overwrite their soul? Nothing left for the afterlife but a copy or a fragment of Nethys? He did it a couple of times thousands of years ago when he was a new god and then stopped. We have records of how the people all went irretrievably insane, including when dead, but we don't know very many details on the nature of the irretrievable insanity. And now he drops levels on people but doesn't talk to them. He's an extreme case, but Asmodeus also doesn't ever talk directly to mortals. He communicates to devils who then attempt to translate for us. Who else doesn't talk directly to mortals? What do Asmodeus and Nethys have in common? I think most of the gods that aren't ascended humans talk to mortals rarely, if at all. The gods that ascended via the Starstone are Norgorber, Iomede, Eridan, and Caden Kalian, and the general understanding is that they're better at talking to mortals because they can use an internal copy of their mortal mind as an interface of sorts. Nethys is also technically said to be an ascended human god, but his ascension process was different and drove him mad, reportedly. And then there are scattered other ex-mortals, Irori, lawful neutral, who ascended through attaining perfection, Erakura, a lawful neutral god of secrets and soothsayers, and the queen of Dis in hell, Milani, chaotic good goddess of bloody revolutions. Remind me of the alignments and interests of the star stoners. Keltham remembers that Norgorber is the god of crime, but was pretending not to be carefully memorizing that at the time. Norgorber, neutral evil, god of crime, Yomade, lawful good, god of fighting evil, particularly Abaddon and the World Wound, and Zon Kuthon, but she's not best friends with us either. Caden Kalian, chaotic good god of drink, uh, of mind-altering substances, and freedom and adventure. Aroden, dead lawful. Neutral god of colonization and population growth, sometimes glossed as god of humanity because he was strongly in favor of more of us. Oh, right. I've been told not everyone here is human. Which did seem potentially kind of important, especially the species that supposedly couldn't interbreed with humans and might therefore be actual different species instead of heritably shape-changed humans. But there were just too many important things at once, and Keltham didn't want to interrupt his lesson to ask. Who are the non-human ascended gods? Could those gods talk to humans after they ascended? Uh, the elves have their own pantheon. I don't think it has any ascended former elves in it. Milani was a half-elf. There is a god who is an ascended rat, Lao Shu Po, but I've never heard of anyone successfully talking to her. Sarenrae's an ascended angel, but she doesn't directly talk to her followers. She sends heralds. How did the rat manage that? This drastically contradicts my fragile picture of how I thought anything did or possibly could work. Ours, too. I do not know the answer to that question. The conventional one is that she ate the corpse of a Tian god and thereby ascended, but that's hardly more satisfying. Keltham spends more time attempting to acquire knowledge and debug his current theological problems. 
sort of losing track of time, actually, not least because he does not have a wristwatch or any other means of keeping time, and taking away Adathalani's wristwatch when they're already in the middle of asking. Additional questions is sort of like yanking the breathing tube out of somebody who already wasn't breathing. He acquires a slightly better and still incredibly confusing picture of Galarian theology with certain selective omissions and alterations. And it absorbs lots of time, which is good, because hopefully downstairs everyone is all briefed on Taldor. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.